0: G'day from Australia. President Biden said earlier this year that this is a time for renewal and resolve. And Australia agrees with our American
1: friends. From the Development Intelligence Lab, I'm Bridie Rice and this is The Readout. Each quarter at the lab, we take one gnarly issue and gather together the best of the best from the region, government and academia. We dive deep to unpack the challenge and develop options for the future. In this podcast, The Readout, I'm gonna take you behind the scenes of the lab's latest inquiry into development and democracy in the Indo-Pacific. In this series, we'll share the conversations we've been having over the last few months with experts from different backgrounds. Hey, Peter. Hey, Brady. Hey, Nicola. Hello. Hey, Serena. Hi. Hi. Off the back of campaigning on the idea of renewing democracy, President Joe Biden announced earlier this year that December would see the US host the first of two global summits for democracy, where countries around the world would attend and commit to promoting democracy. So in the lead up to this summit, we've been investigating one key question. What will Biden's summit mean for the Indo-Pacific? But to start, let's dive into the summit itself this is episode one, a Summit for Democracy. Hey, Bryce, how you going? Hi, how, how are you? This is Bryce Wakefield. He's the National Executive Director of the Australian Institute for International Affairs, and he's been following the Summit for Democracy as it's been unfolding. Coming into the summit, Biden and his administration made it clear that countries were expected to commit to democratic reforms at home and to promoting democracy abroad, and in his remarks, Biden was clear that the US had a lot of work to do in its own backyard when it comes to democratic renewal. So before we get into exactly what happened at the summit, I wanted to get an idea from Bryce on where Australia was at as we came into the event.
2: Well, I mean, you know, Australia obviously is one of the leaders in the world when it comes to democratic norms, but it really I don't know that it has much to offer a summit like this except moral support and, and there are some uh, some concerns frankly about um, uh, democratic practice in Australia. For example, um, members of parliament in Australia are a bit too quick to take out defamation suits on those who criticize. Them, the current government is flirting with voter ID laws, which are sort of modelled on American practice, Republican practice, which is generally seen as trying to suppress the vote. We've got a prime minister who endorsed uh, or said that he he might favour a candidate if she were to run while under investigation by anti-corruption commission. And um, the government itself has has been coy about setting up um, a federal body to deal with corruption. So there are questions around Australian democracy that need to be asked. And I don't really see um, the current government doing what Biden is doing and being quite reflexive um, in the case of his own country.
1: Okay. so we know that no democracy is squeaky clean, ours, the US or any number of countries in the Indo-Pacific. And that was Biden's starting point for the summit.
0: Democracy doesn't happen by accident.
1: We have to defend it,
0: fight for it, strengthen it, renew it.
1: So now the summit has just wrapped up. What happened? To help make sense of things as they unfolded, I called Richard Maud. Richard Maud is the Executive Director of Policy at the Asia Society Policy Institute. He's a former Deputy Secretary at DFAT and authored the last foreign policy white paper.
0: Overall, I think we should give the Summit for Democracy the benefit of the doubt. Of course, there's been a lot of debate about the wisdom of holding this summit. Um, Most of the pre-summit media was poring over who was invited and who was not, and there were some inevitable controversies about that and some puzzling decisions both on who was in and who was out. And a number of foreign policy analysts um, uh, and a number of regional governments were also concerned that the summit might uh, be part of um, a Biden administration push to promote a competition of systems, that is democracies versus autocracies which most countries in Southeast Asia or in the South Pacific and South Asia for example, are really not interested in, in being a part of.
1: A competition of systems. On this, Bryce had a little to say on China and the democracy white paper they released on the eve of the summit
2: obviously uh, in its rhetoric China is attempting to appeal to developing countries it's also wary I think that this summit for democracy um, is being used in a geopolitical sense there was some talk of setting up a d10 you know a similar group to g7 or uh, or, or or to g20 of countries that were only democracies and um, and therefore creating some kind of um, geopolitical block. This was something that was proposed when Biden was running for office. But I don't think the summit for democracy is quite that.
1: Now I'm going to take you back to my conversation with Richard, who described what President Biden had to say at the summit
0: democracies have to prove that they can solve the big problems of the day, and he talked about democracies and shaping the rules of the road to govern the 21st century. But I think that in the end, actually we saw much more weight put on the idea of democracies getting behind and investing in a series of practical initiatives to support the institutions the rules and the norms that uphold basic human rights core freedoms you know the essence of human dignity just systems and the like and biden also made it clear that this agenda applied as much to stopping the rot inside existing democracies as it does to trying to roll back the march of autocracies, the administration has put its money where its mouth is, to some extent, not lavishly funded, but it's set down a series of initiatives uh, in areas like the fight against corruption, in supporting uh, reform elements in societies, in trying to support free media and the like. And then I think the final thing I'd say about giving the summit um, for all its controversy the benefit of the doubt, is that the administration is clear that it sees this as a process, not an, an event. So it wants to repeat the summit in a year's time. It wants and has asked for um, other the other participants in the summit to make similar commitments to the one it's made, similar practical commitments to put more effort, more resources into supporting the things that uh, you might say are the basic building blocks of free and just societies without particularly promoting democracy itself. And so we'll we'll see in a year's time, really, just how successful that effort has been.
1: Richard and I then dived into the announcements coming out of the summit. The US, unsurprisingly, announced millions of dollars on democracy support, a lot of it coming through USAID into the region. The EU has come out with over a billion euro in commitments for similar activities. But at the time of us chatting, I hadn't seen any announcements from Australia or even much media coverage of our Prime Minister's speech at the summit. I checked in to see if Richard knew of anything that I'd missed.
0: Well, at the time of this recording, Bridie, we hadn't seen any. Now, that doesn't mean they hadn't been made, so it's not yet clear. I would say that in recent years, there's been a partial retreat by Australia from this space in our part of the Indo-Pacific, particularly in Southeast Asia, to some extent in the South Pacific um, and there are a combination of factors involved. One of them is budget cuts uh, to the aid program. Another is more hostile environments, especially in Southeast Asia, against what is perceived as interference or external intervention in the affairs of regional countries. And a third one, I think, is that a very strong driving emphasis that the government puts now on its Indo-Pacific strategy, which is essentially about working with others to build a a balance against Chinese power in the region. Well, that requires a certain degree of pragmatism in the choice of one's partners. But there there is an opportunity now for Australia, if it chooses to do so, to use the summit to find ways of reinvesting in support for civil society, press freedom, support for basic freedoms in the region in a way that doesn't, uh, doesn't um, challenge um, our Indo-Pacific strategy.
1: So that's a quick wrap up of the first Summit for Democracy, but it leaves us with a much deeper question. What will the summit mean for the Indo-Pacific and the work Australia and other donors do in governance and democracy in the region? Over the next four episodes, you'll hear a range of perspectives on this issue, as I ask experts the question. If you're enjoying these conversations, then you might also like our publication, Develop. It's a series of essays on this exact topic, with many of the authors you'll meet right here on The Readout. You can read the essays, including a foreword by Richard Maud and I by visiting DevIntelligenceLab.com. On the next episode, we'll get a Pacific perspective on the summit from Serena Sassingen. I think you can't also talk about democracy without talking about the economy. And the type of economy that we have shapes the type of democracy that you do have. The Readout is brought to you by the Development Intelligence Lab. The show is produced by Madeline Flint with production support from Connie Ages, Isabel Coleman and Rachel Mason-Nunn. The music is by Voljami Merto and it's hosted by me, Bridie Rice. Special thanks in this episode goes to Richard Maud and Bryce Wakefield.